Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Bible Quest. I don't know what I started to say. This is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Uh, Chase Byers, who is usually with us, is not, but good-looking Joe Works is. Um, no slight to Chase. <laughs> How you doing, Joe? <laughs> Hello, Jeff. Thank you for the uh, uh, inappropriate uh, compliment, or at least undeserved. Um, and uh, how are you doing today? Well, you are in Elmira, New York. I am in Exton, Pennsylvania. Drew DeGrados is behind the scenes running the show. We're going to talk about the sinner's prayer today. You ever run into people who want to talk about the sinner's prayer? Uh, fairly often, actually, yes. Um, and, uh, it's, hard, it's, get... hard, it's hard to... Uh... Go, go ahead. Where do they get this? Where do they get this? I, yeah, do you see these little tracks where they will have a, a lot of information about how Jesus died on the cross, how, how we have sinned and we've been separated from God by our sin and Jesus died on the cross to save our sin, save us from our sins. And that's all in the Bible, right? Well, actually I have seen it in Bibles. Uh, it's no, no, been no, no, a no, few no, years. No, 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 not, not, I'm not talking about the sinner's prayer yet. I'm talking about the oh. little tracks that lead up to the sinner's oh. prayer. Yes. Where they, they yeah, the, yes. The discussion about the fact that we've sinned and we've become separated from God and Jesus died to take away our sins and all of that is in the Bible, right? Certainly. What they begin with is very uh, scripturally based. And then they get to the end and they say, but if you'll just say this prayer, you'll be saved. I don't know. I I'm, I'm look like I'm having internet problems. It looks like I'm not uh, having, a, I'm having a continuity issue here. Uh, can you hear me okay? Well, uh, there's been some hesitation. I've always assumed it's on my part. I usually have uh, uh, difficulties, so uh, I don't know. Well, Maybe anyway, you can determine which one. But then they get to the sinner's prayer and they have this little prayer. Just say this prayer and they have it written out word for word. And you can't find it anywhere in the Bible. So you were going to tell us. Uh, so Drew is telling us we've got some video hesitation going on there. So to our viewers, uh, we apologize. We'll do the best we can with it. Um, so the sinner's prayer, where do they get this? Well, I have seen it. People have showed me in their Bibles where, you know, somewhere around concordance and maps and, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, those sections that are added on to the very end, often there will be a page that says to be saved. And then they will list several of those things that you mentioned a while ago about how we are, uh, sinners and need the blood of Jesus. And then it'll have a section, say this prayer. Um, and uh, obviously it's not a quotation from any of the 66 books of the Bible. Yeah. And what is interesting is we do have the Bible saying something about people doing something to be saved, to have forgiveness of their sins. And they just kind of ignore that. I have a, an ongoing discussion with a young man who is in a denomination where they teach the sinner's prayer. And, you know, he's a nice guy. And when we study, he sees the points that I'm making. He sees what the scripture says, but he keeps coming back trying to say, okay, well, here's why we think the sinner's prayer is, is legitimate. Here's why we think you're saved when you say the sinner's prayer. And he'll try this tactic and then he'll try that one. So I want to share with you, Joe, and our viewers today, his latest explanation as to why 
one should pray the sinner's prayer. And he goes to a very prominent book of the New Testament. He goes to the book of Romans. Let me see if I can pull it up here real quickly here. Uh, yes, can you see that? Uh, I can see that, yes. It's not very big. I can make it bigger. Um, I can make it so that it's, uh, well, I guess I'm going to slide this little thing here. All right, so up at the top, it says the Romans road and then to salvation. So that's the idea. If, if we want to find the sinner's prayer, we just have to follow the Romans road to salvation. Of course, when he says Romans, he's not talking about Roman soldiers. What's he talking about? The book of Romans. Right? Book of Romans. And he's got a little road graphic. I don't know if you can see the road. That oh, is yeah, I see that now. Well, that's the road, Romans road to salvation. So cute graphic, right? All right, so then what he has here is uh, white on black. He has a little summary of the verse that he's going to provide. And again, a little summary of the verse he's going to provide. Is my cursor showing up? Yeah, 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 you're right on spot. All right. And a little summary of the verse he's going to provide and so on. And eventually we're going to get down to the sinner's prayer and then one more verse. This is something put out by uh, some organization here, which I'll put down here, Teen Missions International. So teenmissions.org. I guess I could go to that website. I didn't do it. I should have thought to do this. Probably go to that website and I could probably find this graphic here. Uh, so let's take a look at this. He starts out um, and he says, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And so the verse that he has to support that is Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What do you think about that, Joe? So it's interesting that the wording that they put there, we are all sinners by nature yeah. and by choice. Yeah. Sometimes when we talk about by nature, we're talking about something like second nature, suggesting that, you know, things that we have learned and that we're imitating, that sort of thing. It seems by the fact that he has by choice afterward that he's implying something along the lines of inherited sin. I think uh, so. I think so. Certainly, I mean, depending on how you were, use the word nature, um, you know, in Ephesians, it talks about being children of wrath by nature. Uh, in Ephesians the fourth chapter, and so um, we we could certainly talk about the fact that uh, customarily or typically, um, and using the word nature to describe that, uh, we are sinners. But I really think what they're getting at is you inherited it and you chose it. Well, I don't see that being taught in this verse. I don't see that. But that's not the main point we want to focus on. What it does say is we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, all right, we're all sinners. Let's take that. And then he says we receive eternal life as a free gift. And the verse he has to, to support that is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. So you can see we're just following the Romans road. And he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is salvation a gift? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you can't argue with that scripture. You know, he's just quoting the scripture. Um, uh, so, And I wouldn't have any argument with the idea that it's a free gift. It's not something I can pay for. It's not something that I 
I don't get eternal life because I have offered something of equal value in exchange for it. Yeah, so, absolutely. In fact, you have passages uh, like in Romans 5 and in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. Yeah, good. good. But, but then we're going to backtrack. So he's coming down the Romans road to salvation, but he's going to back up Romans 5, 8. I do find it interesting the way they've hopped around in this con in the book of Romans. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he's, the little blurb they use to summarize the point is God demonstrated his love for us, his enemies. So he's saying that we're the enemies of God. That'd be because of our sin. But God demonstrated his love for us. And so Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Any problem with that statement? Nope. Nope. So no, he got it all. Plain statement that's, that you can take right out of that verse. That verse certainly teaches that God demonstrated his love for us who were his enemies. That, no problem with that. Um, now, uh, then it says, we must trust and surrender to Jesus as Lord. And I don't have a problem with that. I just think we need to let the Bible define how we trust and surrender to Jesus as Lord. But the passage they quoted is Romans 10, 9. So we got to Romans 6, jump back to Romans 5. Now we're going to jump ahead to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then what's this right here? What's down at the bottom? Uh, that, that must be Romans 10, verse 11, is it? <laughs> actually, no, no that, that's, that's different in my Bible. Yeah, actually, here, they just kind of stick the sinner's prayer in there. It's not in Romans, but all of a sudden, we're going to stick it in here. Well, of course, what he's trying to su suggest is that because Romans 10, 9 says, do something with your mouth, namely, confess, that, well, then you can pray this prayer, and then you're saved. And so the prayer says, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin deserves to be punished. I believe Christ is the Son of God who died for me and rose from the grave. I want to turn from my sin and trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I can now have through faith in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And, you know, remember all those times in the book of Acts where we see somebody who was uh, not a Christian, not a believer, and they hear the gospel, and then they prayed this prayer. You remember those, Joe? I'm not remembering those. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think through all of the conversion stories, and that, that doesn't ring a bell to me. Well, but, but you do remember all those times in the conversion stories where it says, and he prayed and received forgiveness of sins. So, no, and, and it's interesting. We do have some occasions where people do pray, like Cornelius in Acts 10. Right, Cornelius prayed. There you go. He prayed. And then God sent somebody to him to tell him how to be saved. Uh, oh, the prayer didn't get it done? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the, the prayer was an important thing for Cornelius to do, and we certainly would not suggest that praying is insignificant or even that, that it doesn't have a part, you know, uh, in coming to the Lord. But pra no, prayer did not get that done. What prayer did was initiated God's action to send Peter 
to tell him words by which he must be saved, Acts 11 says. Yeah, that's right. Acts chapter 11 and verse, um, well, let's see here. Is it verse uh, 13, verse 14? In response yeah, 14. to Jesus' prayer, the angel spoke to him and said, send, for jo send to Joppa and fetch Simon, whose surname is Peter. That's verse 13. And then chapter 11, verse 14, the angel goes on and says, who shall speak unto you words whereby you shall be saved, you and all your house. So he wasn't saved by his prayer. He had to hear some words. And in response to those words, he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, okay, uh, here's what, what I, I did with this, this fellow. So, and then it goes on, it says, our assurance of salvation through Jesus. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what they're really doing, they're saying, look, you got to do something with your mouth. They're, they're going to interpret that to mean it's the sinner's prayer. And then they're going to interpret that to be calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus and then you're saved. There's several things that are wrong with this. Uh, one is they, they end up with this sinner's prayer, which is just not there. But they're also hopping around in Romans and really taking some things out of context. And the context of this passage and this passage are important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I wrote him back, and I, I constructed a little graphic like this uh, to kind of illustrate the problem with what was uh, going on here. So let me see if I can pull mine up. Uh, mine is this one right here. All right, can you see this one? I can, I don't see the road as clearly, but yeah. Yeah, my road didn't show up. There was a road there, but it looks like it's missing. I wonder if I didn't, when I, when I uh, grouped all the pieces of this, I wonder if I missed the road. <laughs> I missed the road. <laughs> okay. So the Romans road to salvation. So it took mostly the same passages that he took, at least to start here. And going in order through the text, you know, this, this young man, he's a nice young man, but, and he knows a lot about the Bible. But when he starts talking about the Bible, he picks out a verse here and a verse here and a verse here. And so when I started studying with him, one thing I said, let's just take a book of the Bible and study through it so that we understand the context. We can understand the logical flow of what's going on here. And he really didn't. He'd have a verse that he knew very well and he could quote, but he didn't understand how it fit into the context, how it was part of the logical flow. And when you do that, you end up with things like, well, Romans chapter 10 that says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's talking about saying a sinner's prayer. And, and what, the, what he's missing is, what the folks who put this graphic together are missing is, that part of Romans is not talking about the point at which you're saved. That part of Romans is emphasizing that this righteousness that's through God, that's through death of Jesus Christ, this righteousness that is in Christ is available to everyone whosoever, whether Jew or Gentile. And if I understand that, then I won't try to get the point of salvation out of that passage. I'll get Paul's point which is it's applicable to Jews and Gentiles equally. Earlier in the text, though, there is a place where Paul talks about the point at which one is saved. So let's walk through this. Romans 3.23, that's the first passage that was used in their graphic. And, and sure enough, I can figure out that all have sinned from that passage, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Good enough? Yeah, absolutely. 
I'll, I like your wording. Do what? I like your wording better there. It doesn't include the nature yeah. aspect that uh, he's not talked about in the first three chapters at all. Yeah, just, just stick with what the text says instead of reading into it a theology. Uh, Romans 5, 8. Christ died for us. We're going to get out of this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Plain enough? Yep. Here, you know, he added the idea that we are enemies, and that's right. That's in the text. While we were yet sinners is the idea there. Um, then uh, I'm going to go to Romans 6. And then just following Paul's letter in order, Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 6, we die with Christ and are buried with him when we are baptized, Romans 6, 3, and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Fair enough? Uh, yes, what a significant step to uh, to skip in the previous chart by the uh, uh, by the other group. Yeah. Now let, let's do pay attention to the context just a little bit here. Paul's point here, having demonstrated that we're not saved by works of the law, we're not saved by the law. He's going to make the point that you you do have to put to death the old man. You can't go on living in sin. But the way he's going to make that point is, look, you died with Christ when you were baptized. You were baptized into his death. And so that, like as Christ died, we need to put to death that old way of life and begin a new life, just like Jesus came up out of the grave, out of death. We come up out of the waters of baptism. And so the next point here, we are also raised with Christ to begin a new life in when we are baptized, that word in shouldn't be there. Romans 6, 34, therefore we've been buried, uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4. That may be actually verse 5. Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's actually verse 4, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the earth part is Romans 6, 3, and then that one is 6, 4, yeah. Yeah, this is 6.3 and this is 6.4. So the point being, <laughs> you've got this Romans road to salvation. These two verses, and actually this whole context right here, is talking about the point at which we go from living in sin to beginning a new life in Christ. That's, that's the point. Uh, and, and it's the point at which we become a part of Christ's death, which we all would agree is what saves us. And this connects that with baptism. And so, you know, to me, one of the significant things about this text of Romans 6, 3 and 4, or even uh, the, this first half of Romans 6, is that it's not placed here to prove that baptism is essential. No. It's stronger than that. He assumes the essentiality of baptism— to say you need to not be living in sin. You died when you were baptized. Right. Right. Crucified the old man and you were buried with him. It's stronger than just saying baptism is essential. He's assuming these Roman Christians, this is what you did. You need to live like that. That's right. Well put. Well put. <laughs> All right. So then we work our way through Romans. And we get to uh, Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And, and Paul is dealing with this issue of the Jews and Gentiles. Now, he's 
already alluded to the fact that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile early on in the book. But when we get to Romans chapter uh, 9, Paul starts talking about the, the Jews, those of the, the nation of Israel, Paul's own relatives, kinsmen, who, um, who are lost. And he is very sad about that. But he goes on to talk about the, the problem is that many of them were seeking righteousness through the law, whereas Gentiles were seeking the righteousness which is of faith. And that's verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness obtained righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, verse 31. But Israel, following after the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore or why? because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling. And it goes on and quotes from the Old Testament. But then as we get into Romans 10, I think it'd be good for us to spend a few minutes working through Romans 10 verses 1 through 15. But we'll see his, his emphatic declaration that uh, the, the, the salvation that's in Christ is achievable. It's easy. Uh, whereas the salvation that they would hope to attain through the law is difficult, yea, even impossible, because you can't make yourself righteous. And uh, so, so everybody needs to do it the way the Gentiles are doing it. Um, and so then he is going to say in verse 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believes on him, whosoever believes on him, the Jews were trying to do it by law, Gentiles doing it by faith. The fact is, whether Jew or Gentile, whoever believes on him uh, shall not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It's the same method of salvation for all. So that's the point where we get down to Romans 10, 11 through 13, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all both Jew and Gentile, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I've summarized this. This is true for everyone, regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. Is that, is that legitimate? I, I think that's very uh, significant and, and spot on, yeah. So, all right. Let, let's talk about this. Let's do two things. We've got time to do two things here. Let's first of all talk about some conversion stories, and let's see, uh, did people pray a sinner's prayer, or is there something else that was, was involved? And is it the same thing we see taught in the book of Romans? And then after we do that, let's come back to Romans 10, and let's walk through verses 1 through, 1 through 14, 1 through 13, and, and take a closer look at that, all right? Any particular good, conversion yeah. story you want to talk? You want to start at? We've already mentioned Cornelius. You want to go back to that, or is there another one you'd like to go to? To, to me, that one's really helpful because what we see here is an individual who is a really good guy. Yep. Um, uh, the Lord is hearing his prayer. We might assume at that point then that he is right with God because God has heard his prayer, um, and yet we've already pointed out as Peter is retelling that. The, the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 11, he, there's still something he still needs to do to be saved. But, you know, Cornelius is, uh, you know, 
man, if I could find a Cornelius every day to, to study with, a devout man who fears God, who is a generous person, who prays always, um, that's somebody that we would think, well, that, that fellow's right with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And yet those deeds in and of themselves were insufficient for him. Uh, he needed to, to know what he must do, chapter 10 and verse 6. He will tell you what you must do. Uh, I guess it's uh, depending on what translation you you have, uh, whether that's stated there. But it is confirmed in Acts eleven fifteen or Acts eleven fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, what did Peter command him to do after preaching to him Jesus? Yeah. So you know, the the earlier things in Romans, we can uh, read through some of those thoughts. Uh, we we have this concept that you know whoever works righteousness is accepted by him and by the Lord in verse thirty five. As Peter is preaching to him, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and those with him. And then Peter in Acts 10 and in verse 47 says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And so baptism was something that was commanded just like we read about in Romans 6. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's another story of a conversion story in the book of Acts, and this one's a little different. Instead of uh, talking about a man who was devout and feared God with all his house and gave alms to the people and so on, uh, we're going to read about a man who was persecuting God's people. Now, you could argue that he feared God. He thought he ought to be persecuting those Jews who were believing in Jesus. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. But uh, here, we're, of course, we're talking about Saul, uh, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. But the interesting thing is, again, we have an account of him praying. And so in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus to find people of the way, the way of Jesus. And uh, he's going to arrest them and bring them bound back to Jerusalem, persecuting them. But on the way, Jesus appears to him. And uh, after an initial conversation, who art thou, Lord? And the response, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Oh, (laughs) then... Uh, we find out that the Lord tells him to go to Damascus, and he'll be told what he must do. So this is um, chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. But rise and enter into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, he prays before he's getting to the city. But he is going to be told what he must do after he gets to the city. We come to verse 9. He is three days without sight. He's not eating, not drinking. He's fasting. Jews would often fast when they were in mourning or when they realized they needed to repent before God. And there's a man in the city who's a Jew, who is a believer, and his name is Ananias. And the Lord says to Ananias in verse 11, Arise, go to the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one named Saul, a man of Tarsus, but behold, he's doing what? He's praying. He's praying. He's praying. So here is Saul, who thinks he's doing the right thing by persecuting the Lord's people. Obviously, he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. Undoubtedly, he doesn't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, or he would believe Jesus was the Christ. So all of a sudden, he sees Jesus, who is, is alive, and he starts fasting, and he starts praying. What would you be praying 
if you had been persecuting the followers of Jesus because you thought Jesus was a pony and all of a sudden you find out Jesus is a real thing? I'd be looking for forgiveness. God, yeah. forgive me for this uh, horrible things I've done. You might be praying something that would sound an awful lot like the sinner's prayer. <laughs> but, but I think what, so. But what he is told when Ananias comes to him, remember, the Lord told Saul, you'll be told what you must do. When, when Ananias comes to him, we have the, this part of the account in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Uh, Ananias comes to Saul and says, and now why tarriest thou? And now why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Apparently his sins did not disappear when he started praying or even when he finished praying. Right. But what we do have is very, very. So you start looking at this and, you know, we, we could go to numerous conversion stories. We could go to Galatians 3, 27, where it says, as many of you as have put on, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, we could go to first Peter chapter three, verse 21, where it talks about baptism, the light figure compared to the flood, both involving water. And he says, baptism doth also now save us. And evangelicals will throw up their arms. That say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not saved by being baptized. Wait a minute. You know, before we react that way, it is the word of God that says baptism doth also now save you. So maybe we ought to just stop for a minute and say, well, wait a minute, in what sense could that possibly be true? Well, what we know saved us is the blood of Jesus Christ, his death. But the Bible, Romans 6, connects baptism and the death of Jesus as we're baptized into Jesus' death. So no, baptism isn't something that saves us just in the sense if you dunk somebody in water, then they're saved. But there is a sense in which if I am baptized according to the scriptures, I'm being connected with the death of Jesus Christ, and that's what saves me. So it could be said by the apostle Peter, baptism doth also now save us. The also meaning Noah was saved by water, we also are saved by water. Were you going to jump in there with so well, just a, an illustration, and of course, illustrations don't prove anything, but they illustrate a point. Yeah. Um, there's a wildfires out in uh, California and Oregon right now, extremely yeah. dangerous. Some brethren, uh, I don't know personally, but brethren that I know, know them. Uh, they are in, you know, near perilous situations, mm -hmm. uh, very scary. Mm -hmm. um, thinking of the, the, the fires, uh, that are destructive there. Obviously, there could be a spiritual connection there to fire uh, and, and hell. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the authorities come in and someone is, is trapped and uh, they, there's no way out for them, they, they are, they're, going to be, they're going to be burnt up. And, and the authorities either radio in or somehow they get word in if you will go to this place, go to this clearing, we will rescue you there. And, and, and that's clearly the only way that they have to get out. Yeah. So that authority, they know what needs to be done. In fact, the authority is often looking from on high. They have helicopters and planes. that They can see things from above that people can't see, even on the earth. Mm -hmm. And... So the person can say, well, I just don't think that that's necessary. Yeah. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter what you think. There's a fire, and if you want out of the fire, the person who has the power to save you has the right to tell you what's necessary. And so just to illustrate, we have one on high who understands all things. They are seeing vertically and horizontally what we cannot. And, and, and God on high has said, these are the things that a person must do to be saved. Um, it is foolish to argue these very clear passages, like you stated, baptism now saves us. I had somebody recently say, don't put baptism on the same level as the, as the gospel. Uh, well, that's sort of a, a red herring or a straw man. Um, what we ought to do is let's just accept the biblical terms uh, that, that are given there. Yeah. Uh, second point I'd make is the, the two illustrations that we've used here, and we didn't set this up ahead of time, but I find it powerful. Uh, both Cornelius and Saul, those conversion stories are told three times each in the book of Acts. Uh, that's, that's significant. Acts 10, Acts 11, and Acts 15 yeah. for Cornelius, yeah. Yeah. and Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26 for Saul. Yeah. You know, when you have a conversion story that is told in that much detail, yeah. and both of them were praying, and so we said earlier, we're not dismissing the significance of prayer. Right. It doesn't get you out of the fire. There you go. All right, let's go back to Romans 10 now, and let's take a look at this text here in, in a little bit more detail. So remember that leading into Romans 10, and thank you, thank you for highlighting that, the prominence of those two conversion stories there, Cornelius and Saul, both told three times, and uh, that should make an impression. But going to Romans 10 now, as we get to the end of Romans 9, remember he's talking about the Gentiles who are seeking righteousness through faith, and Israel, verse 31 of chapter 9, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at righteousness. Why not? Because verse 32, they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. All right. So with that intro coming into Romans 10 now, Paul says, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them, for whom? The Israelites, who are lost because they've been trying to be righteous through the law. And he says, my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness, and the contrast is between God's righteousness and man's righteousness. Israel was trying to establish their own righteousness. We are righteous. Whereas Paul is saying, no, you need a righteousness that God can give you, not something you have on your own. And so he says, for being ignorant of God's righteousness, here in verse 3 of Romans 10, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believes. What does your translation say where mine says end of the law, Joe? In the, the end, which verse is that? Verse 4. For, yeah, for Christ is the end of the law. It also says end of the law. So the idea of end here is not so much the termination of the law in the sense that it, it's no more. I mean, you know, we can discuss that point. But Paul's point here is to say that's what the law was pointing to. It's the goal of the law. My, the New American Standard has a marginal reference that instead of for Christ is the end of the law is the goal yeah, of the law. That's the idea. 
So the law had a purpose, but the law wasn't designed to take away man's sin. It was to point to Christ. And the Jews were still trying to find righteousness, the removal of their sin, in the law itself. And uh, so, so now Paul is going to explain uh, the difference. He says, for Moses writes that the man which does the righteousness, which is of the law, shall live thereby. So his point is, if you, if you want to live under the law, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to do the righteousness, which is of the law. In other words, you're going to have to obey the law. And, and however much one may obey the law, if you violate the law at any point, you stand condemned by the law. James says in James, the second chapter, it, how does he say it? You may be able to quote this better than I in James chapter two, verse 10. I can quote it as soon as I get over there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm there. Whosoever shall keep the whole <laughs> law and yet stumble in one point, he's become guilty of all. Paul argues earlier in Romans, the third chapter, that the law doesn't justify us, it condemns us. And so the point here is, if you want to stand righteous under law, you can't ever violate it. You violate one point, you're guilty. So the law is going to end up condemning us all. And I always use the stop sign illustration. You've got 10 stop signs in a row on a city suburban street. And you, you stop at nine of them, you get to the 10th one, and you just gotten sick of stopping at stop, stop signs, so you just go through it. And that's the one where the cop is, and he pulls you over, writes you a ticket, and you go to court, fight the ticket, and you tell the judge, but I stopped at the first nine, and that's not going to do you a bit of good. <laughs> it's, not at all. It's the one that you went through that condemns you. And so for all the law-keeping I may do, it's the time I didn't keep the law that's going to condemn me. And so I'm not going to be righteous. If I'm trying to be righteous under the law, it's going to be that point at which I didn't keep the law, then I'm going to be condemned. So Paul says, uh, verse 6, the righteousness which of faith says thus, say not in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So let's pause here. What he's saying is, if you want to be righteous under the law, you're going to have to keep the law. You can never violate it. And that is that easy or is that hard? Uh, how many people have ever kept the whole law? So that must be pretty hard. And, and, but there's a righteousness which is through Christ. And even Saul, who was persecuting Christ, could be made righteous. Now that sounds like a righteousness that's easier for me to attain. To make this point, Paul goes back to some language that Moses used in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So I'm going to turn back to Deuteronomy 30. And I'm going to stop at Deuteronomy 6 before I get there real quick. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, they're re rehearsing the law that God has given them. It's summed up in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind in verse 5. And verse 6, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your what? On your heart. And then he says, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up and you shall bind them in, uh, on your foreheads and your hands and so on. You shall teach them. In other words, the law shall be where? On your tongue. So you need to have these laws in your heart and on your tongue, in your heart, on your mouth, all the time. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 6. Now we get to Deuteronomy 30, 
And all of this is part of what Moses says as they are on the, in the plains of Moab, about to go into the promised land just before Moses dies. And we get to Deuteronomy 30, and Moses says this in verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. Now remember, his point is not saying that you can keep this law perfectly here. What his point is to say is what God is, is giving you, what God is giving you in these commands is not something that is so obscure you're going to have to do the impossible to find it. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. Back to Deuteronomy 6. Put this in your heart and in your mouth. So here in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11, this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? What if, what if, Joe, what if Moses had said, we've got to obey God's law? And they said, well, where is it? He said, well, it's up there in heaven. We've got to send somebody up to heaven to get it. Would that be difficult? Impossible. Yeah. They, they go to the mountain, they can't get to heaven. Yeah, so, so, so saying it's not like that. He's already given it to us. Where is it? It's in our mouth and in our heart. Then he says, verse 13, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? What if Moses said to the Israelites, okay, all we have to do is find God's law. I hear it's in North America. That would have been a challenge for the Israelites to, to get that law. And he says it's not like that. Where is it? It's in your heart and in your mouth. He's given it to us. We've got it right here. So then he concludes in verse 14, the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Now, this is not a text where he's talking about the ability to keep it perfect. This is a text where the emphasis is God has provided it to you. It's not difficult to go get it. He's already given it to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is going to borrow that language that was used to describe the ready access to the law. He's going to use it differently in Romans 10 to talk about the fact that the law, it would be impossible for us, very difficult, to, to borrow Paul's analogy, to be righteous under the law. He's not talking about getting the law in Romans 10. He's talking about being made righteous by the law. But this time, he uses that metaphor of going across the sea or going up to heaven or going down into the abyss even. He uses that to say, God's already done that for us in Christ. So let's look at it. Romans chapter 10 and verse 6. The righteousness which is of faith says thus. Now remember, he's already talked about righteousness through the law. He said, you got to do it all. But the righteousness is by faith says thus, don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. See, Paul is adapting the language to say, what if we had to go up to heaven to bring Christ down so that we could be saved? Well, we'd never be saved, but God's already done it. In verse seven, who shall descend into the abyss? In Deuteronomy 30, it was go across the sea. The word abyss could be used for a sea. And so Paul changes the word to abyss here because that can also be used for the realm of the dead, Hades. And when Christ died and went down to the abyss to be saved, we don't have to send somebody down there to get him. God raised him from the dead. So the righteousness which is through the law is nigh unto impossible. 
but the righteousness which is through from God through Christ, God's already made that accessible. Christ has already come down and he's already come up. He's come down from heaven and he's come up from the grave. So then Paul completes the analogy to Deuteronomy 30. He says, but what saith it? Now he's going to quote the last verse of Deuteronomy, or not the last verse, but the 14th verse of Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where is it? It's in our mouth and in our heart. Uh, verse 9, because if you shall confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and shall believe in your heart God that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So those, that language there is not designed to say, here's the point of salvation. That language there is to complete the, the allusion to Deuteronomy 30 and say, look, God has already done what has to be done in terms of making it possible for you to be saved. He's sent Christ to you. He's brought him up from the dead. And that gospel message is in your mouth and in your heart. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 6, though, if we want to find out the point of salvation. Maybe to interject another passage here, but if I can explain it well, I think is really just sort of puts the uh, the stamp on everything that you've said. In John, the third chapter, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about you must be born again, one of the things that he says, I'll pick up in verse 12, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so here you have this Nicodemus, a teacher of the law is not understanding what the law, how, how to have this righteousness. And Jesus is making the point here then um, that uh, again, borrowing from Deuteronomy 30, I believe, uh, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. Jesus came down to provide this righteousness, this justification for man, and he's going to be on the cross just like the serpent was uh, lifted up in the wilderness. The Son of Man will be lifted up. So righteousness is going to be given in Christ, not in the law. All right. Well, thank you for wrapping it up that way, and we're out of time. Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope uh, you'll join us again next week for Bible Quest.